Hello everyone and welcome to another beer news. Now this is for the month of October and it's part one because there was quite a few interesting, well I found interesting news stories so I thought well instead of trying to do a, a long video what we'll do is I'll break it into two parts so this is part one and there will be a part two as well. So let's just get straight into it. As always, could I have a drink? Wet the whistle. Mm, it's okay. It's okay. If you wonder what I'm actually doing, this is what happens. I save up all the extra beers that are duplicates of the ones I've reviewed and things like that. And then I just drink them during the, the beer news just to get rid of them. <laughs> so anyway, part one. So we're starting off with uh, beer sporting a head of foam packs in double the flavour. So the benefits of having your bartender pour you a generous head of foam on your pint of beer have been outlined in a new study. The research published in the Journal of the American Society of Brewing Chemists measures the scent of the beer using ultrasonic waves to identify that the aroma components were 1.3 to 1.9 times higher in the beer with a frothier head compared to a flat beer. According to the study, the foam acts as an efficient gas exchange surface, funneling aromas towards the drinker's olfactory sensors, and it provides a drinker's first tantalising entry as to the quality of the beer's flavour, freshness, refreshing, refreshingness and wholesomeness. Don't know about the wholesomeness, and I don't know about the refreshingness, refreshingness, because a lot of times, what you smell isn't always really what you actually taste, and sometimes you can get aromas, but you don't get the flavours, or sometimes you don't get the aromas, but then you get the flavours. And one of the things is, regardless of flavours and aromas, it's the mouthfeel as well. I mean, a flat lager is not refreshing. An over-carbonated ale isn't refreshing. So, again, I, from my point of view, I think that's a bit subjective. Um, I know there's one viewer that's not going to agree with this, and that's going to be Adrian, because Adrian's not a big fan of heads on beer. He... He likes to drink beer at room temperature and can being a southerner who likes his cascales without a sparkler. Now, if you're not from the UK, the best way to describe it is in the north of England and obviously in, in Scotland as well, they use sparklers, but it's a little attachment they actually have on the kind of a pump system just as it goes into the actual glass. So it's on the tip of the actual kind of pipe that goes into the glass when they're using the, the pump machine, um, or a beer machine, whatever you want to call it, to draw the beer up from the cask. And uh, the sparkler just gives a little bit more effervescence, which obviously kind of uh, agitates the beer a bit more and gives you obviously more of a head and just gives you that kind of more of a, a better mouthfeel. In, in my view, because I actually prefer beer from a cask 
um, from a sparkler than without a sparkler. But down in the south, south of England, they don't use sparklers. Most of the beers are, are poured without a sparkler. So they, are, they do kind of be slightly millpondy. They have a, a slight head initially, but that usually dissipates quite quickly. And it is. And I think it's also kind of stems back to they like the cider kind of flat as well. They don't really like their uh, their cider with too much effervescence and uh, the beer the same. And uh, yeah, so Adrian being a southerner, uh, <laughs> which is which is fine, it's not a problem. I mean, every, everybody's got their own penchant and their, their preferences. And uh, yeah, he prefers it without a sparkler so he prefers beer without a head really and uh, he's not a fan of that he just feels that it just is a waste and uh, it's taking up room in the glass that should be there for beer and not for foam which again is fine I can understand that but also if you're drinking if you ever go to Czech Republic and some of the other places including Germany um, Slovakia Slovenia even Hungary there's a there's a big difference. I mean, even Switzerland, um, they do prefer having more of a head. It's more of a tradition in a lot of these European countries to have really quite a lot of head. And of course, Czech Republic, they swear by it. Um, in fact, you can actually get a pour that's nearly all head, nearly all foam. So, it's all kind of relevant, but they say it's actually better for the drinking experience and helps to partake obviously with more flavours and obviously um, gives you a better drinking experience. So what do you think? Do you think it's a good one? I know what Adrian thinks, he's getting bollocks. <laughs> but what do you think? Do you think do you prefer your beer with, with more of a head? <laughs> or do you prefer it as flat as a witch's tit, as they say down in the south? Right, okay, on to the next one is what the US craft beer sector could look like within 10 years. Now, when it says US craft beer, it also includes global craft beer as well, but I think it's really from more of a uh, an American kind of bent rather than a global bent, because it's quite strange because I've also got another story, I think that comes up in part two, which is then asking the exact opposite kind of question of is there a downturn in the craft beer? So take from this what you will, wherever you are in the world. In the UK it might be not as relevant as it is in America and maybe other countries. So again, let's have a look. So the size of the US and global craft beer sector is projected to surpass 282.6 billion dollars by 2032 according to a new report the sector which currently stands at 103.2 billion dollars is poised to reach a registered compound annual growth rate um, of 10.6 percent from 2023 to 2032 observed analysis in a report from the market us drinks and analysts outlined in the research that in 2022 the ale beer segment dominated the craft beer sector largely down to its diverse flavor profiles rich brewing traditions and ability to cater to a wide range of consumer tastes and preferences according to 
the data by distribution that off trade currently dominates the craft beer sector with a market share of more than 60%. Now, the problem is, is one of the things you've got to do is define craft beer. And I think that in different countries, craft beer means different things. I mean, in the UK, people tend to look at craft beer as heavy hopped beers, strange concoction and flavoured beers. And, um, and just kind of more of a progressive side of the beer industry. And progressive side is trying new things. Um, sometimes to the extreme. And I think that's what we class as more of the craft beer industry because we have two sides of the ale industry. We have the craft beer side and we have the more kind of traditional side. We have, that's the kind of two sides to it. Whereas in America, craft beer means something else. Craft beer means more artisan, more kind of traditional small batch brewing styles more traditional styles using American ingredients and less of the kind of mainstream kind of conglomerate brewing right from the likes of Budweiser, Moles and Coors, all this type of stuff and Bush, things like that. So it is more of the kind of uh, artisan kind of traditional style of brewing which of course they don't split it between the kind of uh, more kind of new age, new wave kind of more progressive style um, and traditional style like we have over in the UK they just class kind of most ale production as being craft beer and more small batch and small brewery production being more craft beer orientated so again from that they're incorporating more kind of traditional style beers and less of what we would class as craft beer like APAs, IPAs, things like that and more kind of strange concoctions in relation to stouts and porters and things like that. So I can understand if they're looking at it from that point of view then yes you can maybe see that there's a how would you say a, an opening for growth but in the UK as we'll come along with another story in part two regarding this, things aren't really the same because our craft beer kind of industry is slightly different from the US. And uh, it is more, funnily enough, like um, more US-based ale production including West Coast, East Coast, APAs, IPAs, all this type of stuff. And very strange kind of flavour and concoction, stouts and dark beers. Not so much to do with traditionals, although um, we will have ones coming up in the future reviews where kind of more better known craft beer um, breweries are starting to kind of produce more kind of traditional style beers because they're realising that the market is contracting in the UK for the craft beer 
industry and uh, they're trying to make more traditional and more affordable beers compared to the more um, expensive and uh, heavy hopped craft beer styles. So yes, so what do you think? Are you, are, do you expect the craft beer industry to, to growth in general, um, whether in the US or whether you're in the, the UK or Europe? And uh, what about Asia? Asia, is it a market that's not really kind of tapped into by kind of craft breweries, whether from Europe or from the US? And what's happening in the likes of Australia and New Zealand? I know that you've got the kind of new world hops that are starting to become more popular, not only obviously down in Australia and New Zealand, but obviously they're now starting to become more popular and used a lot more now in Europe. Are they also going to start pushing into Asia more and starting to kind of uh, get more of a craft style beer offerings? into the Asian markets. So again, you've got to look at it where maybe some markets are becoming a bit oversaturated, then uh, maybe they should be looking to kind of move into other markets like Asia and uh, maybe into other areas of Europe as well. Because again, if you look at it with quite a few more kind of Eastern European you have less of the, the kind of heavy hopped craft beer industry. It's starting to kind of come into the Czech Republic and, and some of these places, but they're not really widely kind of promoted so much. And although they are growing, they're nowhere near the size they are, like say in other European countries and the US. So again, is that a market that really should be kind of uh, tapped into? And of course, Russia. Russia is a humongous market and yeah, their craft beer is kind of side of it. From what I would class as craft beer, which again is more of the kind of American style um, beers um, produced by uh, craft breweries over here. That are heavy hot, especially more on the citrus side of it. There isn't really that many available in Russia. And I know under present sanctions, right now that could be an issue but in the future is that a more viable market that would also help to kind of boost growth and everything else so yeah what do you think do you think it's uh, going to keep growing whether in the US or in Europe or the UK or do you think in some countries it's kind of reaching its limit and uh, that's why maybe some of the craft beer breweries are, are starting to produce um, more traditional style beers to try and kind of uh, increase their market share by moving into that market. I know obviously Brewdog has um, said that they've done that and that's why they did the Black Hearts Stout and they've got an amber ale coming out. In fact we've actually got it, I think it's called Shore Leave. I've actually got a bottle of it in fact. Is it in here? Oh I do have. <laughs> in the fridge here. Oh, bring it out. Oh, there we go. So, sorry for the people on the podcast, but we'll obviously be doing this at some point. We do have shore leave. Now, this is basically Brewdog doing an amber ale. So, they seem to think the case is all that for them to kind of grow their market, they've got to kind of uh, 
start moving into the more kind of traditional beer. So it'll be interesting to see what that's like, whether it's a good or bad, but they're realising from their kind of projections that they're going to have to start doing that. And our other companies going to do the same? We'll wait and see. Because again, coming up, I think it's in part two, we have something that certainly counteracts that. We actually have a, a traditional brewery actually coming out with a more kind of uh, craft beer style beer. So we'll be covering that in part two. So there's a bit of it. It's what we're getting in part one, we also have a kind of a counter argument actually happening in part two, which is kind of interesting to see. Well, depending on how you look at it, well, depending on whether these projections are, whether the market is really, you know, as reported. Because obviously some people think it's something else and other people think it's this way. So there doesn't seem to be a kind of, um, a consensus of an, an agreement of how the craft beer market is actually going to go and some people see it yeah it's going to keep on growing it's going to be wonderful and others are thinking well no we're struggling and uh, it's not doing so well and we're having to kind of adjust our strategy because of it so what do you think do you think it's going to be a big growth continuation or is it going to be more of a struggle and again is that in your own country? Let us know in the comments. Now, on to the next one. We have dry lips. It's getting better. It's getting better. Anyway, it must be the mouthwash. Anyway, Czech scientists use pollen to make Celtic beer. Now, this is something close to my own heart because um, coming from Scotland, it was traditional to make beer without hops and to use herbs as the kind of bittering agents and the balancing agents for the brew, as well as also using honey to kind of uh, adjust the sweetness as well. And yeah, it was it was a bit more alchemy going on. In, in Scotland and other Celtic countries as well, not just Scotland, Ireland was doing the same, and to a certain degree also Wales as well, because of constant fallings out, because we didn't really have the climate to grow hops, and being a white country and a cold country, and yeah, England was the main kind of uh, supplier of hops, and one of the issues was that uh, there was always kind of fallings out whether from a military point of standpoint or whether it's from kind of a, a trade standpoint and things like that that uh, hops initially wasn't available and obviously um, at certain times weren't available because of uh, disagreements and issues and price issues and things like that so um, but apparently it wasn't just um in Scotland, um, there was a history of Celtic beer style brewing in Europe as well, which again doesn't surprise me, but it's also interesting because it has more of a connection to the type of beer that I'm used to, like the traditional heavies in Scotland and things like that. So, so yes, so apparently a small brewery has worked with Czech scientists to make the country's first Celtic beer in order to recreate the taste of an ancient alcoholic brew. 
According to Radio Prague International, the beer called Tory Ale was created through a laboratory analysis of pollen taken from an early Celtic burial site in Moravia. Now, if you've been watching the Czech series, we've been obviously looking at uh, different kind of beers and uh, we did Radigas. Radigas is a, is a Moravian beer and it's brewed using lots of different um, ingredients from Moravia and uh, it's one of the kind of hop regions in the Czech Republic and even your Budweiser Budvar actually produces beer um, with hops from Moravia so they do and uh, yeah so it, it's got a bit of a history from the hop side of it but it also looks like it's got a history from way back before hops which again just makes it a bit more interesting so apparently scientists from Charles University in Prague and Palaki University in Olnuk um, had made excavations at an archaeological site dating back to the early Iron Age and were able to extract pollen. The Bruno Botanical Institute then analysed the pollen and revealed traces of millet and herbs which were commonly used by Celts to brew beer. Susanna Golic Merovia told the publication that the prehistoric beer had ingredients for taste and preservations and there was a meadow sweet there was meadow sweet sage mugwort and other ingredients to make the sour bitter taste of beer she says that the discovery of clover though was unexpected as that wasn't usually in beer but the scientists believed that it was found in the honey which could have been used to sweeten the beer Golik Morovi also said that the ingredients for brewing were placed into graves as burial gifts which were quite usual to equip the dead with such products and to have something to eat and drink in the afterlife. The first brew of Torio was created with microbrewery Lysia enabling the flavours of the Celts to be tasted by consumers. She said it's a little bit different from today's beer because it's not based on hops. The herbs give it a bitter and sour flavour and the taste is similar to Groot, which is a type of hop-free beer. So there you go. So what do you think of that? Do you think that's a good idea of maybe kind of, instead of maybe trying to reinvent the wheel, is also kind of maybe go back the way and, and start kind of unpicking certain processes and uh, recipes from the past? more historical ones and see how that goes because it's quite strange because even the Belgians which are very kind of uh, have a really good reputation for, for brewing high-end beers and high-quality beers and even they make a, a, a Scottish ale and quite a few of the, the breweries recognise that style because it's it's a non-hopped beer and it's malt forward and things like that and usually darker ales and they can be of the lower range and they can also be of the higher alcohol range as well so there's a few different options that are actually available 
under the kind of uh, Scotch ale, Belgian Scotch ale um, kind of category. And they see it as a valid category. And maybe is that something that traditional breweries should maybe kind of tap into and start looking at and uh, maybe look more towards the past and history rather than trying to kind of uh, make these wonderful concoctions of marshmallow stouts and things like that and uh, salt and vinegar ales and, <laughs> and all the kind of crazy nonsense that uh, the craft industry seems to be kind of trying to do to make something new and unique and it's nice to see that even in the, the Czech Republic they're looking at well traditions and history and what was done in the past and trying to kind of recreate it and, and see if it's a valid product because that's what it really comes down to I mean you can make these beers and everything else but unless people are willing to put their money on the table and, and actually buy them and drink them and hopefully enjoy them then they're not really viable unless people are actually buying them. So again, what do you think of that? Would you like to kind of try more kind of different styles of traditional beers from history that really aren't made so much anymore? Would you like more kind of traditional beers to kind of be brewed in the more traditional sense and less of the kind of cutting the corners and using all the kind of different available ingredients and attributes that they can use nowadays to kind of emulate traditional brewing styles but without actually having to follow the traditions um, to a more kind of a close defined recipe and process. So what do you think? Well, let me know. Do you, do you like, have you tried any kind of more Celtic style beers, more kind of Scottish or Irish style? And we're talking about lower hops or no hops at all beers. Um, let us know and tell us what you think about traditional beers. Are they fine the way they are? Should we be looking further into the past or is the future with all these strange concoctions from the craft beer industry what we really need? Let us know. Down below. Right. We're on to the next one now. <laughs> this is an interesting one because this is a, a brewery that I've went past quite a few times. I uh, was doing work in Wales um, quite a few times and uh, was over in Gwent area and uh, to try and avoid traffic I went past this brewery quite a few times and I've always wondered whether to pop, pop in and it's a bit of a craft beer brewery and uh, it's promoted by our long-haired lover from Barry. Um, he seems to like their products quite much, which is getting that's fine, not a problem. Um, but I'll be honest, I haven't tried anything, I've avoided trying them because there's always something I don't know, something was always about me that I just I don't know, there's something I just didn't think was was right about them. Some of the names and everything else, you just thought, no, something strange about that. And uh, there was a, a a report in the news regarding this brewery about doing something that really wasn't classed as uh, playing fair. And I thought, well, I'll wait to see what the outcome was. And this basically the story is a kind of outcome of the initial story saying that, yeah, well, they've released this type of beer and um, they're kind of uh, overstepping the mark. So what it is, is 
beer industry warned after primed ruling. The beer industry has been warned about appealing to children after complaints against beers from Welsh brewery Tiny Rebel, including Monstar and Primed, were upheld by the Alcohol Industry's Independent Complaints Panel. Three of the brewery's beers, Monstar, Tiny Fast and Primed, were also upheld under the Code Rule 3.2 for having a particular appeal to under-18s. As part of the consideration under the rule, the panel considered the appearance of Tiny Rebel's logo could sometimes be a compounding factor when determining a product's overall appeal to children. The panel noted that the branding of Monster closely resembled Monster Energy Drinks, a well-known non-alcoholic energy drink brand, and the panel concluded that the design and popularity of the brand meant it could appeal to under-18s. For Primed, the panel made a similar judgment on the popular culture phenomenon of the hydration drink Prime, which is primarily driven by under-18s and school-aged children. The panel also noted that the product intentionally mirrors the non-alcoholic drink known for its hydrating and performance-enhancing effect, and this indirectly suggested it could fulfil the same purpose of the original brand. Tiny Rebel issued a statement stating, We are proud to have raised a significant amount of money from the sale of each of these beers, which went directly to our Tiny Rebel Community Fund. The money raised was already started to sorry, has already started to be awarded to the community projects around the UK. As code signatories and an alcohol producer, we take our responsibilities very seriously and have now started to use the Portman Group's advisory service to sense check our marketing campaigns as well as our can designs which again is a bit strange because I can understand if they did it once and then they've done this and then they brought in maybe an advisor to kind of help them kind of uh, independently review their marketing strategies and their can designs and everything else so they're not um, overstepping the mark maybe going into boundaries they shouldn't be and, and things like that but they've done it a few times and they know they've done it and they've purposely done it so let's basically take a popular non-alcoholic drink that's popular with the younger generations including generations that are under the age the legal age for drinking and kind of copying their packaging I mean up here there will be a little uh picture of the primed label which was really a, a rip-off of the actual prime energy drink and you're thinking this wasn't an accident and, and don't kind of try and make out it wasn't a, a mistake because it wasn't a mistake you knew exactly what you were doing and you were at it now yes they haven't said how much of the money from these beer sales have actually went to this kind of charity that they've created up of this foundation but I also think that's a kind of a get-out clause. That, oh, yeah, well, well, yeah, we were doing bad things, but it was for a good cause, so <laughs> forgive us. You know, and again, I think that's a kind of a, a kind of get-out clause in a, in a certain way. I think they're just kind of ripping the piss, to be totally honest. Uh, 
they were chancing their arm, they got caught, and this was a kind of backup plan. Well, at the end of the day, yeah, we were caught our pants down and everything else, but hey, we're doing it for a good cause, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I take that with a pinch of salt. Well, probably more of a handful rather than a pinch. I think it's kind of dubious practices. Let's be total. It's a dubious practice. He knew what they were doing. I don't know how much money is going into this kind of uh, this foundation they've created for um, UK projects, but are they making a profit from it? If they're making a profit from it, then fuck off, basically. You're at it, and who who are you kidding? If you're making a profit, then regardless of what you're giving away to this foundation. You've done this for a reason, and you've done this to kind of uh, tap into a market that you really should not have been doing. Plus, also you've been copying well-branded products for your own benefit, which again is copyright and intellectual property rights as well that you're probably kind of really kind of very close to breaching. And I'm sure these companies have warned you about it. So again, it's poor business practices, and and if you think that's justifiable, then. If you're willing to do that with the marketing, what are you willing to do with the beer? That's again, have alarm bells ring. If your business practices are dubious enough just from the can design and the marketing, what the hell are you doing with the beer? Again, you know, are you following the tradition? Are you doing it the right way? Are you being honest? Uh, well, there you go. So, yeah, maybe at some point I'll do some tiny, tiny rebel kind of reviews, but don't see anything. I don't, don't see myself rushing out to get any. If I come across them, maybe, but I'll be totally honest, I'm not in any rush and uh, I don't have a strong desire for it either. So, yeah. So, we're on to the last story for part one. Mm. Almost finished my beer. And time's not too bad, so I'm glad I made it in two parts. Could have been really long if I'd done it in uh, one. But anyway, the next one is could cask beer learn a little from the Madri effect? The business behind marketing cask ale could learn from beer brands like Madri, according to beer writer and author Pete Brown. Now, Pete Brown is a he's a beer writer and uh, author from the, the UK and he's done quite a few interesting ones. He wrote a good piece on uh, Warburton's um, beer being discontinued um, I think by Molson Coors and he just felt that it was a an, an important ale in its own right and as well as uh, historically and to stop production was uh, a sacrilege in a lot of ways and he was quite hard on uh, most and cures which let's be totally honest they're coming up in part two as well and uh, I, I find it just quite funny um, with the story coming up in part two about most and cures because I'll be totally honest. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of irony in it. But we'll get back to that. But yes, so he, he hasn't been too enamoured with the business practices of quite a few of the, the big beer companies. But basically what he says is, leading a talk at the Future of Cask seminar hosted by Cask Mark, 
at Brewers Hall in London this week, Brown explained how much the premium lager category had grown despite other beers struggling to retain high volumes since the pandemic. He pointed out how, despite the struggles that brewers had faced, people's thirst for new beers was still very much alive and, really, it was the marketing that needed to be refreshed. Speaking about the issues casks fail, face, sorry, Brown said, if we look at premium lager, it's now 111% of the volume that it was in 2019. That's how much it's kind of grown. So it's actually 11% more than it was in 2019. So this is the Madri effect which opened up a new category called Mediterranean Lager. Making his point by pointing out the inconsistencies in the success of the beer sector, Brown stated that ultimately what consumers say they want and what they accept based upon image are very different things. So what he's basically saying, what the consumers say they would like to have and drink and what's marketed to them and they're willing to buy are two different things and really what it comes down to is you you can give them something that maybe they don't want so much but if you market it and package it in the right way that's attractive enough to them then they'll still buy it anyway even though they're claiming that they want maybe something else he highlighted how consumers told us they wanted authentic stories, localness, and then gone by a completely made-up brand that pretends to be Spanish and is brewed in Tadcaster in Button-upon-Trent, which is actually true. They try and make out it's a traditional Spanish-style beer, and of course it's got history in Spain and everything else, which is all bollocks. It's, uh, it's just a story, just a myth that's basically is made in Tadcaster, Button-upon-Trent. He added, it's very easy to slag off Madri given that it's carling with added hop extract, and that, that's really what it is. It's, it's carling with uh, a little bit more hop extracts to give it a, a bit more hop edge. And, uh, yeah, and they adjust the sweetness accordingly. But Madri is doing something that is phenomenally right, and we need to look at what they are doing, because Cask isn't doing that well, and Madri is. So yeah, you basically, if you want to improve your growth, maybe it's not a case of keep coming out with different beers and everything else. It's maybe take some existing beers and repackage them and just give them a little bit more of an edge. It's like maybe taking a good amber ale or a good porter and uh, repackage it and add, well, take a good porter and give it more of a, a plum porter edge or more of a dry fruit edge or something like that. Um, try things like that. Take a golden ale or an amber ale and add more kind of uh, accent flavours and things like that and repackage it as something different. And maybe that's the way of kind of boosting your sales and uh, attracting new drinkers to your products rather than keep churning out the same beer or the same brand and hopefully for some strange reason people are going to suddenly switch on to it. Um, and I think obviously marketing is a big thing. I, it's amazing how you've got good traditional beers that 
Rage Whistle by but I can guarantee I'm going to a party in the start of November it's a birthday party it's a 60th birthday party and one of the things is the beers are going to be laggers and they asked me about the beers and they told me they said, well, what beers would you recommend but they're all going to be laggers don't worry I'll be taking one ale I'm going to be sitting there drinking laggers all night Jesus fuck no I'll be totally honest I probably won't be taking any laggers at all but I won't be taking my own beer because I ain't drinking that um, but yeah that was what they wanted they wanted basically all um, laggers and they're not interested in ales because they work in spoke everybody really drinks laggers so even the ale drinkers well I'm sure they can suffer it and it's that kind of reaction to it so is that what the beer industry needs to do is kind of uh, kind of repackage things. I mean, it, could you take a golden ale and uh, repackage it more towards lager drinkers? You could. You could do that very easily. Don't call it craft laggers and all this nonsense, but come up with something else, something a bit more mythical, just like Madri, um, and give it a bit of an edge. And, and give it something else, <clears throat> you know, and see how it goes. I mean, I'm very, I'm kind of strange why nobody's ever done this because you, you can get lime associated with lagers, and then of course you can get um, razzlers, which is kind of lagers and kind of uh, on a more sweeter base with kind of lime and lime kind of uh, flavour accents and things like that. But nobody's ever done that with a golden ale. Maybe if you did a golden ale and uh, maybe it's a slightly more sweetish, maybe with slightly more honey tones. I think Fuller's has kind of done something kind of similar, but they haven't done the kind of the citrus connection with um, so much with the lime and the lemon. But if you did more of a kind of Radler style kind of golden ale, but with more of a kind of honey bent and a little bit more edge with a kind of lemon or lime or even lemon and lime I'm surprised nobody's done that and then kind of uh, marketed it as a new kind of refreshing drink of the summer and things like that I think people need to be a bit smarter and especially in kind of more traditional brewing companies and uh, breweries and yeah I think he, I think he's actually got a point I think it's a case as well instead of watching kind of um Brands like Madri suddenly appearing and people drinking it. I know there's um, there's a YouTuber that he loves Madri. Jesus, he almost creams his panties over it, which is great. That's fine, you know. I work in the basis is if you enjoy something, then enjoy it, regardless of what people think or say about it. But he loves Madri. Um, I think he's a blue van man or something like that. Yeah, he loves it. He that's one of his kind of favourite beers, and yeah, that's fine, not a problem. But it wasn't his favourite beer a couple of years ago because it didn't exist a couple of years ago. It's just, you know, and I guarantee Carling wasn't his favourite beer previously. So it's not as if he's come from a Carling drinking kind of side of it and then, well, progressed into Madri. There's a lot of people that have progressed into Madri from lots of different angles um, and had lots of different laggers as their uh, favourite. But Madri have seemed to kind of take the box and most of that's down to kind of 
making the flavour unoffensive, make it easy to drink. Um, it's not really busting the flavour at all. I, I reviewed it and, well, yeah, there's not really much there. But obviously it just drinks a bit better than, say, the likes of Carling and other mainstream piss waters. But let's be talking honest, it's still a mainstream piss water that's kind of rebranded, remarketed and slightly adjusted to kind of give a new product. And it really isn't. But, yeah. And maybe that's what they should be doing in uh, more traditional breweries. And especially with cask. So, tell us what you think on that. And uh, do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you think we should just still stick to the, the same old kind of uh, strategy and, and hope to God things change? Or do we have to be more proactive and maybe keep the beer the way it is and uh, just repackage it in a more attractive way for uh, more mainstream beer drinkers, which seem to be lager drinkers. Anyway, that's the end of the beer news for part one. If you've enjoyed it, please enjoy and watch part two, which of course there are some counter arguments for some of the stories we've covered here. And uh, we've also got a new beer announcement in there as well, which could be good. Well, it could be bad. Anyway, thanks for watching. Cheers. Bye for now.